0: Welcome to Change My Movie Mind, the movie debate show where Anthony from Tis the Podcast and Jay from Filmstrip Podcast pick a topic, present opposite sides, ask questions, and then decide who should change their movie mind. I'm your guest judge for this episode, the somewhat honorable Carmelita (laughs) Valdez-McCoy, frequent film podcast guest, and compulsive movie watcher, Anthony, Jay, welcome to the show.
1: How's it going? It's an honor to be here and an honor to meet the famous Carmelita.
2: <laughs> always fun to be here, Anthony. Good to see you again, Carmelita. Always good to be graced with your presence, and I could not think of a better judge for our topic tonight because you have the widest breadth of uh, film knowledge of uh, any of my my uh, pod family. So uh, glad to have you on to do this with us. Oh,
1: I would no, like to. St- I would like to strike the ass kissing <laughs> from the record. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Your Honor, the uh, the proceedings have not started yet. I was simply paying you
0: a in the Always, flattery will get you but... nowhere. Course, you know. we're going letter of the law here today. So none of that will I will take none of that into account. <laughs> <laughs> so our topic is when the Oscars got Best Picture wrong. At the time of this episode's release, the awards season is nearing that golden statue conclusion we all know maybe used to love or at least hate watch this time of year. You will each have a chance to present two cases of when you think the Academy Awards, otherwise known as the Oscars, chose the wrong movie for Best Picture. Each will present talking points, hear a rebuttal from the opposite side, have an open Q&A section, and then present final arguments. After that, I will decide who wins <laughs> that round. Change my movie mind. So, for those keeping score at home, there are four rounds in this show, and each round is worth one point. Jay currently holds a 1-0 to zero lead on Anthony from their Zack Snyder versus Rob Zombie show, which I hope everyone in the gallery has listened to. But, just like any team coached by Kyle Shanahan, no lead is safe. One of our hosts will either have a close or a commanding lead after this episode. So, gentlemen, are you ready to proceed?
1: I'm Just ready. as I'll ever be.
0: Excellent. <laughs> Jay, we'll have you present your first case.
1: If it pleases the
2: court, um, I would like to bring forth the 62nd Academy Awards hosted in 1990, recognizing the great films of the year 1989. That year, Driving Miss Daisy won the statue for Best Picture, but I would like to posit that that is the wrong film. It was another film nominated for Best Picture that should have won, and that film is Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society is not only a coming-of-age tale for all times, But it is one of the most powerful, dramatic, caring, and funny performances of Robin Williams' incredible career. But he doesn't carry the movie, and that's the amazing part about it. It's the younger cast. Robert Sean Leonard, Ethan Hawke, Josh Charles, Gail Hanson. Then you've got the older gentleman, Norman Lloyd, Kurtwood Smith, and even Alexander Powers, in kind of a thankless role, does such a great job of settling you on the plight of these young boys coming to terms with understanding the world around them and understanding the changing world around them cuz you got to remember the time frame of that movie it's the late 1950s heading into the 1960s we're out of world war 2 where it's a distant memory at this point we're in the the boom of the prosperity of the 50s heading into the 1960s there's all this hope and vigor in the world it's before vietnam and all of the things that were going with that it's before you know, the dour seventies would come around. There's all this hope springs eternal. And at the center of it is this story about a guy who's pressured to two guys really, who are pressured to do things by their parents that they don't really want to do. And the teacher that unlocks it for them. And I remember Robin Williams talking about that. He based his entire performance on the teacher. I wish I had had when I was growing up. And I thought, man, what a powerful statement. And I watched that when I was a, a young boy. And then years later, When I got into the profession that I'm in and I had to kind of write sort of a central thesis of what am I doing? I remembered that quote and I said, I want to be the career counselor that I never had when I was in school, you know? And so that's kind of driven a lot of my career. But beyond that, the movie is shot so beautifully. It is such great landscapes. They do a great job of shooting that school and putting you in that time frame without beating you over the head that it's in that time frame and they do all of it around a story with a lot of heart, a lot of emotion that doesn't tip over into being melodramatic or sappy. So I believe Dead Poets Society should hold the Best Picture Award from the 62nd Academy Awards, over Driving Miss Daisy.
0: Thank you. Anthony, rebuttals?
1: Oof. Jay, that was a tremendous argument. And while I think the Oscars have gotten it wrong more often than they've gotten it right. I cannot follow you down this line of thought. Driving Miss Daisy was the right choice for Best Picture during this Academy Awards season. Look, both films are undeniably powerful, but Driving Miss Daisy is a poignant and a socially relevant cinematic achievement um, with epic storytelling performances, and cultural impact. And isn't that what the best movies do? They're about something. And Driving Miss Daisy is about societal change. Uh, it offers a nuanced portrayal of you know, friendship that transcends racial barriers and religious barriers, and it just features outstanding performances. I mean, come on. Morgan Freeman... Come on, the, the guy's a god and a movie god. He's literally god in many movies. And you know, started back here. Um, but the story's accessible and it has universal themes like friendship aging, and you know, you can't you can't beat it, in my opinion. So
2: Anthony, let me ask you this. You you talk about driving a stacy being culturally relevant and about a subject matter that's important. And I wouldn't argue that it's not. I think you're you're right on with that, but this dead poet society is also about culturally relevant topics it's about pursuing your passion versus what someone else wants you to do it's about living the life you want to live, making the decisions you want to as a young person and sort of uh, to borrow a line from uh, Robin Williams in this is he's quoting one of the great poets, you know, "Sucking the marrow out of life and getting the most from it and the impact that he has on those Those kids in that movie is just as powerful as the story around driving Miss Daisy. And you know, you look at those guys, and I've always done this thing of like, where did they go in life after this? What became of them? And you can go in lots of different directions with that. You know exactly where everybody goes at the end of driving Miss Daisy, and that's fine. Two of them go to a grave very soon because they're very old. All right. (laughs) Let's Let's just call it. These guys have the rest of their life in front. All right. As it is. And you see what the experiences in this do for them and topped off by nothing more than one of the greatest walk off the the set scenes ever when Ethan Hogg leads that minor revolt and they stand on their desks and oh, captain by captain. And all Robin Williams does is turn around Cock that half smile and say, thank you, boys, and walks out the door. But that music swelling, you can't get better than that. That's a whole lot better than the shucking job stuff that's going on in Driving Miss Daisy.
1: Look, Driving Miss Daisy's examination of um racial dynamics is historically relevant and is still relevant, sadly, today. It is a film that is still resonates with audiences worldwide today and contributes to ongoing discussions that are culturally and societally relevant. And uh, yeah, Dead Poet Society, it's great. It's about the pursuit of passion, but I find Driving Miss Daisy's themes are a little more uh, socially important. And the best stories in my mind, again, are something, um, they have something to say about society.
2: If it pleases the court, I'd like to ask my colleague a, a quick question. If you, if a best picture is really the best picture, one of my like criteria for that is what if you made it today? All right. If you made Driving Miss Daisy today, it would be a very different movie. It would be about the same things, but it would be approached very differently and probably wisely so because some of it they weren't ready to talk about at that time. If you made Dead Poets Society today, you would make it exactly the same. And that to me is the lasting impact of a best picture nominee is that you don't have to change it in whatever era it's made in.
1: I would argue that driving Miss Daisy could be made the exact same way today because it's called, it's called a period piece. They wouldn't, you know, they would, they could set it the exact same time period uh, talk about the same issues And be just as relevant if it was made today and still win that oscar with the same exact i mean morgan freeman could still play the role today to the same great effect he did back then dead poet society i have a question for you do you think it would be as resonant without uh Robin Williams in that lead role? If they made that today,
2: no, it would not. And I would, I would actually argue none of these, neither of these movies would work without the cast that's in it. I think the only one you could probably replace is Dan Aykroyd, um, who's sort of miscast as the son in the movie. But you, you could find someone that's probably not as out there. Um, so if you know, but but no, no, you know what? It would be a very different performance. But could you find someone today that could pull that off? Oh yeah, big time.
1: I would argue that that movie in a lot of ways lives or dies on Robin Williams shoulders. And if it was made today, it wouldn't be as impactful without him.
2: Hmm. It's an interesting argument, but I think you could, you could do it even beyond him today. I think the story is that powerful.
0: Any further questions, gentlemen, are you ready to move into final argument? All right, let's go. Jay,
2: your first thought. Dead Poet Society hits to a heart of all of us at one time or another, no matter where you are, no matter what race, religion, creed, education you've been through. You've all been at that pivot point in life, maybe more than once, where you've had to choose, do I want to really do what I'm passionate about or do I want to do the thing everyone tells me I should do? And again, I'm, I'm, I'm projecting a little bit of knowledge and what I do for a living and what I've been trained to do and that the best choices, the most successful people have a strong marriage of interest and skills in their background. But always, always, always that interest has to be higher than the skill level, because if your skills are really high, but your interest is lower, you'll never get any better at it. But if you have that peaked interest, that reason to suck the marrow out of life every day, you'll build the skills you need to be successful. You'll find people to fill in the gaps for you. And what you'll realize is that all of that stuff doesn't matter anyway. What matters is building relationships that last and making an impact in the world and the people around you. And that's what Dead Poet Society is about. That's why it should be the best picture from the 62nd Academy Awards.
1: You could easily take building relationships and impacting the people around you and apply it to Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy is just as universal, if not more so, as Dead Poets Society. It speaks to uncomfortable racial and religious and sexual tensions in our society that still exist today. And if people don't think it's relevant or applies to them, they're not paying attention to the film or what it's about. Um... these are universal themes and it should make you a little bit uncomfortable as good as the movie is and as heartwarming as the movie is in a lot of ways too Um, it didn't shy away from these important themes on race and the like Uh, you know embraced them and that's what makes it such a great movie amongst many other things and the Academy Awards got it right this year and I'll just end it there
0: All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, i have had a chance to deliberate and although you both put forth really compelling arguments for why the Academy either got this wrong or right, I'm going to have to give this one to Jay and say, Oscar's got it wrong. I think, I think my, my decision, what really pushed me over the edge was in thinking about how the film has aged. And maybe, you know, it's hindsight, right? But I I do think, although Driving Miss Daisy was dealing with some very important topics, topics we need more movies about, I think the way it was handled little old-fashioned, not as far ahead as it could have gone, especially when you're looking at, I don't know, films like, do the right thing. You know? So, anyways, giving this one to Jeff. Thank you,
1: Your Honor. Uh, I will be filing a motion to appeal as soon as I step out of this courtroom. I I don't want to say this has been a rigged process, but... You know, I wasn't presented with the these movies in advance, ladies. So. I, I didn't know yours either. So. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm yeah. about to be on that foot right now. I'm sitting here with the Google machine, just going, "Oh, please, don't pick something I can't defend."
0: <laughs> You're your right to file an appeal. I will <laughs> review that motion once it's filed. But in the meantime, <laughs> your turn. Present your first case,
1: ladies and gentlemen of the jury, distinguished judge. And fellow debater, Jay, I stand before you to argue a case that's lingered on my mind and the mind of many cinephiles for years. The Oscars constantly get it wrong, but not only did the Best Picture winner in the year 2009, not only did they get it wrong, but the movie that should have won Best Picture wasn't even nominated. And that is Christopher Nolan's masterpiece, The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight is not just a comic book movie. It's a crime saga that just happens to star a man, two men dressed as a bat and a clown. It is a complex narrative with exceptional character development and innovative. And Chris Nolan used innovative filmmaking techniques. And it pushed the boundaries of what superhero movies are. It elevated the genre to new heights. And it just elevated cinema to new heights in general. General. Uh, Nolan's attention to detail, the mesmerizing performance of Heath Ledger, who won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor as the Joker, uh, it resulted in a not only a cinematic experience that transcended location, sex, age, race, everything like that, but a pop culture experience. Slumdog Millionaire, it's obviously a commendable film in its own right, that's what won that year. But it doesn't possess the same level of technical and artistic innovation in my mind. Uh, the Dark Knight had groundbreaking cinematography, practical effects, and just a cultural impact and relevance that year, but also still to this day. I mean, the Oscars literally changed their own rules in hindsight because they realized that they messed up. By not nominating the Dark Knight. That's the year they expanded the category to 10 the next the following year. Um and yes, some Dog Millionaire does address some very important social and societal issues. However, it did not have the same transformative impact on cinema or pop culture as the Dark Knight did. And um you know, box office success and audience reception would show that. And I know the Oscars likes to push that stuff aside when looking at the, the Huda Award. But I think it's very relevant to this conversation. Um, so, yeah, not only it's lost that year, but it's complete omission remains very puzzling to me. Um And yeah, that's pretty much it. The Dark Knight for the Wind, the biggest Oscar snub in history.
0: Jay, your rebuttal.
2: Well, Your Honor, my colleague makes an incredibly compelling argument about a film he's clearly very passionate about, no no doubt. Um, And I agree with a lot of what you said. But let me tell you why I think Slumdog Millionaire was rightfully awarded Best Picture. Now, I will agree and concede that The Dark Knight should have been nominated for that award that year. It did win some Academy Awards, one for Best Sound, which was well-deserved. But it's not original material. And Slumdog Millionaire itself is an adaptation of a novel, but a loose adaptation at best. And it was the time when Oscar decided we were going to start introducing foreign culture, foreign film to American audiences in a way that's not accessible on the level that they expect, but we're going to make them pay attention to these movies because they're culturally relevant, because they matter, and because they talk about part of the world that America benefits a lot from, but doesn't necessarily pay a lot of attention to and by taking the idea of the the craze of the you know millionaire show and giving it that foreign twist and presenting it to american audiences with such a likable cast and dev patel giving such an incredible performance and then ending it in true bollywood style with the big dance number and all of the things the oscars rightfully awarded Slumdog Millionaire as the best picture that year for its cultural relevance, for its difference, and for its chances. And I'll go back to what I started my argument with. The Dark Knight is an incredible crime saga. But I would like to present to you that the Michael Mann film, Heat, is the blueprint for The Dark Knight, as much as The Dark Knight and Heat are blueprints for the James Bond film, Skyfall. If you will, Heat begat The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight begat Skyfall. But no one has touched *Slumdog Millionaire*.
1: So, you make you make a few interesting points in your rebuttal here. One is, yes, I completely concede that Chris Nolan was inspired by *Heat*, amongst many other cinematic great crime dramas. However, since *The Dark Knight* opened in 2008, how many films have tried and failed? to be the next dark night how many have taken inspiration from him to try to replicate that lightning in a bottle i'll also concede that you are correct the dark knight uh you know is some dog millionaire is a loose adaptation of a book i guess was it was a book or a play it was a novel a novel um but The Dark Knight is also a loose adaptation of 90 years worth of comic books that had to be sifted through to create one two and a half hour compelling story that made sense and didn't contradict itself. You know, where the, Chris Nolan said, I'm going to make a film about a bat and make it appeal to the widest audience possible around the globe. Not just teenage boys sitting in their bedroom jerking off at night to Catwoman. Like, this was really the year. It was a pivot <laughs> <point>. <laughs> It was a pivot I moved to this trigger from the record, your honor. I, uh, <laughs> <overall>. <laughs> I knew I liked her. Uh, <laughs> it was a pivot object. <laughs> <laughs> in cinematic history, truly. Because this is a year that comic book movies stopped being these niche, geeky watches. And became events that everyone around the globe, regardless of their age or their sexual orientation or their nationality or anything like that, highly anticipated. And it spawned the first true golden age of comic book cinema. You know, we've gone through Western sci fi fantasy, ups and downs of horror, all these mm. incredible genres over the years. This was truly the first stretch of a comic book golden age that I think is finally coming to the end. But Chris Nolan started it all.
2: Chris Nolan, I would argue is also to blame for the wrongheaded choices that several studios have made for now nearly two decades, trying to chase what he did. And what he realized was that you don't make a Batman movie. You make a crime movie that Batman just happens to be in. That's what he did. You know what? Nobody's trying to chase. Nobody's trying to chase slumdog millionaire because once you get it right, baby, you don't need to do it again.
1: Let me ask you this, Jay. Is it Chris Nolan's fault? A bunch of lesser directors and lesser writers decided to take the wrong lessons from his movie. No, no, no more than it's Def
2: Leppard's fault that all these crappy bands tried to follow them or Eddie Van Halen's fault that everybody tried to finger tap throughout the 80s. No, it's not and his I- fault, but everybody you do agree uh, the subject of our last show is one of his people trying to chase him who
1: miserably fails at it, Zack Snyder. But here's the thing. Whenever there's a cinematic achievement on the level of the Dark Knight, everybody tries to chase that lightning in a bottle, perfect example, right? Mm-hmm. Another pop culture staple, uh the Harry Potter series, that started this trend of let's split the finale into two and milk as much money as possible out of it. That every big franchise afterwards tried to do, whether or not it deserved it. Not is just that the big ones, the Divergent
2: people tried that too. Oh,
1: sorry. Well, exa- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but is that David Yates's or WB's fault? No. It is these people who lack artistic vision and are in the industry for the wrong reason. They don't have, they lack a vision.
2: Your honor, is my colleague time? trying to argue that the greed of studios is now Christopher Nolan's fault too? <laughs> so, <laughs> because I don't <laughs>
1: think that's <did laughs> the case. I,
2: I, I will say this. I will say this. Ha, have a lot of people tried to copy the dark Knight? You betcha. No doubt. And, and look from a visual standpoint, Wally Fister should have won best cinematography for that movie. All right. And the special effects are out of this world. No doubt. But when we're talking about best picture, remember, we're talking about something that hits on a lot of different levels. And yes, the Academy has been at best inconsistent in some of those things throughout its lifetime. But in the time when this was done in the early 2000s, or really at the end of the early 2000s, they started to realize that when we put this label on a movie, it's got to be one that is pushing a direction. A message, a a story, or a culture forward that doesn't get attention, and The Dark Knight got its attention. The box office said so. Slumdog Millionaire deserved that attention, and it still deserves that attention, and recognition today. Though I will again concede, The Dark Knight should have been one of the five nominated. I will agree. I would I would swap out Curious Case of Benjamin Button or Frost Nixon either one.
1: For the that. Dark Knight still speaks to the administrative spy state. It had a whole thing to say on how our government spies on people where Batman decides to break his own code to hunt down the Joker at the end. And look, it had something to say. And Slumdog to say no about,
2: speaks to our bread and circuses will keep the masses at Bay State, even in uh, foreign countries.
1: I would argue, maybe incorrectly. None of us are fortune tellers, but I would argue 50 years from now, people are still going to be talking about the dark Knight and holding it up as one of the greatest films of all time, not just comic book films mm-hmm. and slum dog millionaire. While still, a, again, it's a great film. No one's denying that it's going to get lost in the conversation. 20 years later, eh, 15 years later, It's already the case. People still adore The Dark Knight. You turn on a streaming service, it's still always in, like, the top ten viewed. People love it. And, again, this isn't just a pop culture. It wasn't just a pop culture event. It was a piece of art. And the Oscars failed to realize that. They gave the award to the Best Supporting Actor, which Heath Ledger, may he rest in peace, deserved. But to not nominate the Dark Knight, not to give it that win, not to give Chris Nolan a nomination or a win, it was an egregious oversight. And that's all I have to say.
0: Are we ready to move into final argument? All right, Anthony.
1: Look, I (laughs) I think I've said almost everything I need to say here. I'll just say this. You know, again, the Academy Awards often looks down upon genre films. You know, there's a reason. There's a whole category of movie called Oscar bait. You know, people know what appeals to these judges who hand out these Academy Awards. But I think it was a huge miss that The Dark Knight didn't win that year. Again, not just for its impact on pop culture, on the globe, but it truly is a phenomenal movie. Chris Nolan had a vision. It was artistic. It Again, it was a crime saga. It transcended the comic book genre. It was a heartbreaking drama that left you riveted and on the edge of your seat for the entire two and a half hour runtime. And when it ended, you wanted to see more. And he created, via his script and the talented actors he cast for the ensemble, this lived in world that you know people were sad we would never we would never get, we would never get that experience again because he led your past like you know it's just it was an event in time it was lightning in a bottle movies like that don't come along all the time and it was an egregious oversight on the oscars part so there you go again i, I- case your honor
2: Again, I don't uh, disagree with my colleague's argument that that movie should have been nominated. The Dark Knight deserved a nomination. Christopher Nolan also deserved a nomination, though we've got to remember David Gorger and Jonathan Nolan had a lot of input on that script as well. So they're, they're part of that. But I would say again, Danny Boyle and leveling Tandon what they did with the Q and a adaptation for Slumdog Millionaire and finding such a fun, heartwarming, but yet poignant and Important story about poverty in India and the, the issues thereof that you know we as Americans just want to close our eyes and not pay any attention to. They gave it to us in 120 minutes that goes down very easy. Dark Knight deserved to be nominated. Slum Slumdog Millionaire was the rightful winner of that Year's Academy Awards. I rest my case.
0: Well, gentlemen, this one... This one is challenging to the court. (laughs) Let me tell you, I think you both presented well thought out and thought provoking arguments. I, I I would also like to make sure it's in the record that I thoroughly enjoy both of these films. And I think, you know, I, I I just have to judge this case based on what you've presented to me today. I'm going to give this one to Anthony.
2: I accept the uh, ruling of the court.
0: Thank you. It, I want you to know that it was with a heavy heart.
2: <laughs> there'll, I, there'll be no appeals.
0: I had to rule one side or the other. And mm-hmm. I will also say. You know, I don't get to vote in the Academy selection process for this. And it's probably a good thing because of years like that where, you know, there's some genuinely wonderful, impactful film. So,
1: Your All right, Honor, so- flowers and chocolates are on the way to the courtroom.
2: <laughs> Your Honor, I was, I was told that ass kissing was not allowed in this court. <laughs> <laughs> I would like my early preamble re entered into the record. <laughs>
0: I mean, you can send chocolates and flowers all you want. It changes nothing in this courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> but I am really partial to poppies or peonies. Not roses.
2: Noted, noted in the record. Thank you.
0: So, <laughs> so I, before we move on to the next round, just to recap here, we have Jay has one point. Anthony has one. So we are currently tied, gentlemen. So make make this next round of cases count. So, Jay, <laughs> present your next case.
2: If it pleases the court, I would like to bring us forward 21 years in Academy Award history to the 83rd Academy Awards. When the best picture was given to a film called The King's Speech. A funny, somewhat poignant little movie, but it wasn't the best movie of the year. Not by a long shot. In fact, my esteemed colleague has made the argument partially for me already because the director of the film, he championed. This is maybe his greatest achievement in cinema. I'm talking about Inception, of course. Inception should have won over the King's Speech. Let me tell you why. It's the most creative action thriller of the 21st century. Bar none. All of the James Bond, Daniel Craig films wish they could be as smart as Inception. Every cool Mission Impossible movie, some of which I really like, wishes they could be as smart and neat and cool and as tightly wound up as Inception. And every action thriller down the line wishes they could come up with a story as intricate. It's a visionary director and a visionary cinematographer, Wally Pfister, again, doing incredible work with a lot of practical effects, using good camera tricks. And then a cast. That absolutely hits it out of the park. Leonardo DiCaprio at the height of his powers. Joseph Gordon-Levitt going from being the kid in Halloween H20 and the kid on 30 Rock to being a legit badass, dramatic action star. Tom Hardy coming into our public conscience, seeing the greatness that that man is. Killian Murphy in a role that, I mean, he is going to get all of the flowers in 2024. Well-deserved, by the way. Oppenheimer rules but we get to see the, the early work he can do. It introduced American audiences to Marion Cotillard, who's such a nuanced and smart performer. Ken Watanabe doing his great it, overarching, is he the villain? Is he the good guy? We don't really know. And then Elliot Page giving an incredible avatar for the audience. But here's the reason why Inception really should have won the Oscar, because you know what Oscar loves to do for best picture award movies about movies. And Inception is not about planning a dream in somebody else's mind to steal some money out of a vault that may not exist. It's about making movies. Cobb is the director, Leonardo DiCaprio. Arthur is the producer, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Tom Hardy, Eames, is the actor. Killian Murphy is the audience who's having to be brought along into this. And Saito is the studio. And Elliot Page Ariadne is the production designer and the artist behind it. And the Marianne Cotillard is an interesting twist on what the Cobb character is. Cobb is Nolan and mall is his wife, Emma Thomas, his producer wife. And they have talked about how boy, they can get lost in the fantasy world of the dark night and you know, insomnia inception, all these things, but then they have to go back home with their kids. And remember, did you pick up milk yesterday? No, did you? And the the work that it is to come out of that creative high and back to your normal life, the movie works on so many levels. And if nothing more, no one sits around today going, man, I really liked it. When he finally got the speech, right? Everyone still talks about did the damn top topple over or not. I rest my case.
0: Thank you, Jay. Anthony, your rebuttal.
1: Jay, you make some excellent points here. There is no denying that. Before I get into the depth of my rebuttal here, I would like to just inform the court a little bit about my background. And that is, I have an English lit degree, a bachelor's degree, and a master's degree. And one of the things that pisses me off about my chosen subject is when people say, oh, this is what the author intended. (laughs) where half the time that is not the case. I am a Chris Nolan fanboy, truly. Uh, I watch a lot of his interviews. I love every single one of his movies, bar Tenant, but that's a debate for another time. Um, and I have yet to see an intervie- <laughs> interview where Jay's interpretation, he gives credence to Jay's interpretation. But that's okay. Because that's not my, the main thrust of my argument here. Look, Inception undeniably boasts an incredible cast, impressive practical effects, and visionary directing. Nobody is arguing that. Chris Nolan, in my opinion, might be one of the greatest living filmmakers and is one of the best filmmakers of all time. He should have got a directing Oscar for this movie. However, I believe its complex narrative may be a factor in questioning why it didn't get the best picture. It wasn't the best picture winner. Look, when it comes to movie-going audiences, studios always have to weigh complexity versus accessibility. And one thing about a lot of Chris Nolan's films is they're overly complex uh, to a fault. And as much as I love Inception, I do. I don't find it too complex. However, I went to see this movie with people who were just like, well, are they in a dream or a dream of a dream or a dream of a dream of a dream? What's going on here? And I think that hurt the film. Like, that, you know, the Oscars, I think, have shown they have a preference in a lot of ways for simplicity. They reward films with clear, straightforward narratives um, that effectively communicate their themes and messages um they award films that often feature an academy award nominee in makeup to play a historical figure and uh, i think inception's layered structure was viewed by some of the people at the oscars as being too intricate too convoluted too challenging um you know king the king's speech was a fantastic historical drama it had captivating storytelling captivating character development i mean it was a true story about a leader with a debilitating stutter and his journey to overcome it it may as well win in 2024 because we're dealing with a leader like that currently uh so it is timeless in its story uh it You know, it has historical significance and educational value. Um, And it has a universal theme about overcoming adversity. Which resonates with a lot of people. You know, we're all struggling in our lives with this or that, internally, externally. We all want to overcome our own adversity. And to see a movie about somebody in the highest stratosphere of society struggling with his own version of adversity and not being taken, worrying about being taken seriously on a world public stage. I think that's a resonant story for a lot of people, you know, and Inception's impact while significant within the science fiction and thriller genre does not have a universal theme that can be embraced by the wider public. I think it's a very, uh, It's niche in a lot of ways. So I think the King's Speech rightfully won the Oscar this year um, due to its compelling, emotionally charged story.
2: So, So I would like to let the court know that my interpretation of Inception with the roles that the characters play, I didn't make that up. Nolan said that. He said that for years, that that's what it is. Now, the bit about him and his wife, he's never copped to that. That's my interpretation of it. But what Nolan will tell you is that Hill films are built to be where you walk out of them talking about them. And one of the funny things I find about it is that everyone really did get hung up on. Does the top topple over or not? And what Nolan finally revealed to everyone is what you need to understand is that Dom doesn't care if it does anymore. Because he's he's got his way back home. Whether that's real or not, it's real enough for him. That's a universal theme for anyone. And no doubt, King's Speech is a funny, poignant story about someone overcoming challenges. No doubt. Produced very well and could have also been produced by ABC, Lifetime, nowadays Peacock, whatever. Inception is a -a one-of-a-kind film. And if it's too smart for the Academy, that's the Academy's problem. I'm arguing that it maybe it was, and that's why they got it wrong. And Inception is the kind of film, much like 2001, A Space Odyssey. It wasn't entirely appreciated in its own time, but as the years go by, Look at the number of people that put that one high, that talk about its influence, that talk about the things that Kubrick was doing in it, that attach a lot of meaning to it that Kubrick didn't necessarily mean, and neither did Arthur C. Clarke. But both up until their death said, go for it if that's what you want to see, even though, as Sigmund Freud taught us, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Inception is the kind of movie that will, when you walk out of it, you want to have a conversation about it. You want to talk to someone about it. King Speech, you watch it once, and you put it away. Anthony, tell me this. Tell me this. Okay. Answer me this, this question, and, and I'll throw it back to you. Would you rather the best picture be awarded to a movie that, again, challenges you, makes you think, makes you want to have a convo to try to unravel it, or one that just goes down easy like vanilla ice cream? Your silence says a lot, sir.
1: <laughs> I Let me ask you a question, Jay, if I may. Certainly. I would like it for the record that Anthony did not answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I would just like to state for the record for the judge and the jury here that uh, attending of our constitution is the right to remain silent, and that is what I was doing <laughs> in that case. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, I have a question yes, for you. So you said Chris Nolan has said has expanded upon that end scene in Inception. Uh, in the years since the movies come out, mm-hmm. he says Dom doesn't care anymore because it's his reality. Regardless, this is the reality he wants. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. if it's real or not. Right. It, I remember being there opening night for this film, and it mattered to audiences. And one mm-hmm. thing I cannot stand for any director, is when they have to expand upon what they mean or what they were going for, rather than letting the movie speak for itself. And this is one of those cases where, okay, cool, Chris Nolan said that, but if that's what, he should have made that clearer in the movie to audiences. Because that's not how audience, the mass audience took it. The mass of audience took it. And honestly, that's a trend with directors nowadays, in my opinion, Zack Snyder, that uh, needs to die. Do you not agree?
2: I can make an argument either way. I think good pop songs can end on a beat and they can also fade out and both be just as effective.
0: Any further questions, gentlemen, before we move into the final argument? All right.
2: Your Honor, my esteemed colleague, everyone listening. Still at this point, thank you. I simply ask you this. If best picture films are ones that stand the test of time, that continue to ask questions that people are still talking about to this day, when's the last time you had a conversation about the King speech? when's the last time you went down a Reddit rabbit hole about did the top topple over or not? I rest my case.
0: Thank you, Jay. Anthony
1: i will always prefer to personally watch movies about over overcoming adversity and i think good movies regardless of genre have that element to it and uh as innovative as inception as you know what 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 was it truly truly on a deeper past surface level about
0: Well gentlemen. I rest,
1: I, I, I'm done. I rest. I'm done. I'm done. Your honor.
0: <laughs> this, this case. Open and shut, my friends. I'm going to have to give this one to Jay. The Academy got it wrong.
2: Thank you, your honor.
1: So
0: let's move on to Anthony, your second case,
1: please. Sure. I would like to roll back the clock to 1940. Oh. And I would like to talk about what a crime it was that the Wizard of Oz did not win the Best Picture Oscar that year. And that Gone with the Wind was chosen in front of it. Uh, Gone with the Wind was chosen instead of it. Two cultural touchstones, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, I would just state for the record that the judge is showing her bias right now.
0: <laughs> the to pass out because <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, the doozy. But I believe the Wizard of Oz deserved to win that year, and let me get to my reasons why. Uh... First of all, it's a groundbreaking marvel in terms of its use of Technicolor and innovative, for the time, special effects. Um, if I could experience any moment in cinematic history with the audience, like first viewing with the audience at the time, Wizard of Oz is one of my top two moments I would have liked to have experienced opening night in a theater, when it makes that transition from Sepia-colored Kansas to Technicolor to Oz, because I can't imagine how captivated audiences must have been and how magical uh, that piece of visual storytelling was at the time. And, you know, it's just a Marvel well past that you're talking about practical effects and puppetry, the way they brought the scarecrow, Tin Man and Cowardly Lying to life, Margaret Hamilton's makeup and the way she zooms around on her broom. It, a lot of it holds up to this day and it showcased a level of creativity and technical prowess that was unparalleled in the era. Um, You know, again, I'm going to make the pop culture argument. Uh, Wizard of Oz's impact on pop culture is immeasurable. You know, turn on the TV every Thanksgiving. What's on TV? It's a Wizard of Oz because it's themes of... Finding courage, heart, brain, and home within yourself epitomizes uh, the universal themes of that holiday. Um, you know, kids today, th- there is a shelf of best movies of all time, and The Wizard of Oz is upon it, right next to the book of the best books of all time. Um, and I think The Wizard of Oz's ability to resonate with audiences of all ages and all cultures, not just Americans, adult Americans... Um, gives it, you know, makes it, you know, it's a more universal movie. <laughs> it's firmly established it as a cultural touchstone. Um, and talk the universal themes of good versus evil, family, friendship. You know, it's relatable. And Gone with the Wind. Don't get me wrong. Its co- themes are complex. Um, however, you know there are some things with Gone with the Wind, even at the time a little outdated. There's a white savior narrative, revisionist history and minimizing of slavery and the depiction of African-Americans, absence of agency for the African-American characters. Uh, It kind of glorified the antebellum South. And every story elements of both of these films aside, I'm going to tell you Wizard of Oz is a tight 90 minutes, gone with the wind. You need half a freaking day to watch. Okay. I understand both were adaptations of books. And look at how they did it. Wizard of Oz improved upon its source material and became the definitive version of that story. Gone with the Wind literally adapted sentence for sentence that book when it could have been cut in half easily. We get the point. Look, I, I, there's so much about the Wizard of Oz. To love. I mean, it's still to this day a movie, one of the first movies people show their children to introduce them to the world of fantasy and everything like that. Uh, But it is one of those rare, in my opinion, perfect films that should have been honored at the Academy Awards and was not. Um, I think the Academy Awards that year got it wrong and took the easy way out. And picked a movie that, while resonant here in America, where, you know, the Deep South and everything like that, might not be as resonant around the globe. And yeah, Wizard of Oz, Victor Fleming made a masterpiece. And I will die on that hill.
0: Wow. Jay, your rebuttal.
1: Your Honor, my
2: esteemed colleague, I want to quote the great cinematic attorney, Kevin Lomax, from The Devil's Advocate. I don't like my client, Your Honor. I don't think it's a nice film. I don't think it's about nice things. But to say it doesn't have cultural relevance, to say it's too long, to say it doesn't elevate or give agency to a minority character when Hattie McDaniel won an Academy award as Mammy is just missing it. Now the wizard of Oz is an incredible touchstone picture. That year was full of movies like that. You go back and look, you've got of mice and men Stagecoach, goodbye, Mr. Chips just to name a few Mr. Smith goes to Washington for goodness sakes. There's a lot of, I mean, that was a hard year, but gone with the wind took an enormous novel that was very popular, was controversial in its time, even in today, as we know, and boiled it down to the essence of the story. The story is not about the civil war and slavery in the South. That's the backdrop for a love story between a headstrong woman and a headstrong man. And in 1939, having a headstrong woman with agency and control over her decisions was a difference maker. It changed things. What Vivian Lee did with the Scarlett O'Hara character set the Academy on fire for decades and decades for what a female protagonist could be. Not to mention the incredible cast. I've already talked about Hattie McDaniel. The incredible surrounding cast. Not to be topped off with the unbelievable, undeniable, charismatic element that was Clark Gable as Rip Butler. It was a tough year for the Academy, but Gone with the Wind got it right. Because you know when the Wizard of Oz goes from black and white to color to black and white, everyone thought that was cool. You know what, the Gone with the Wind did? We're going to be colored all the time. Big Technicolor. And no one saw that back then. And to its length, the producers knew this. They built in this thing called an intermission. Worked out pretty good for them, too, because the box office receipts were tremendous almost $400 million and not even in adjusted dollars. And for what that film went through to pull off the thing that they did with no CGI. No effects wizard's houses. This was all painting and you know, doing it with the old-fashioned camera tricks and doing some of it twice, having to reshoot some of it because they realized that looks dull and adding a lot more color to it. Gone with the Wind was a piece of cinematic achievement, the same as its fellow nominees, Wizard of Oz, was. But I think the Academy got it right because Gone with the Wind was the best picture of 1939.
1: There are a couple of things I want to address in your argument here, Jenny. Number one, I take issue with your phrasing, boiled it down when it comes to the novel, because they didn't boil anything down. They did cut nothing from that novel. <laughs> they took a torturously long novel and made it into a torturously long movie. As, you know, whatever legacy the movie has, it did not have to be that long. So I just take issue with that. However, you talked about what an incredible cast Gone with the Wind had. No argument. I would like to point out how an incredible cast of Raz had. Judy Garland, they gave an honorary Academy Award that year because her performance as Dorothy was so beloved and iconic. And you want to talk about an incredible cast? Let's look at Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, there's a lot of iconic imagery and characters in this film, but she may be the most iconic of all. In our collective conscience to this day, when somebody thinks of a witch, she is usually the one that pops into mind. She is still the gold standard for evil witches. And talk about commitment to the craft. She nearly died during the Munchkinland sequence when she went up in flames and they had to reshoot it when she got better months later. Um... You know, there to this day, uh, in retrospectives that magazines, and publications, and everything does when they talk about best cinematic villains of all times, she is consistently in the top three, along with Darth Vader, and then the third is usually the Joker. Michael Myers usually switched out, but she is constantly in the top three, deservedly so. Um. I'd like to also take issue with the fact that you said when it switched from black and white to color, it was sepia to color. Your honor. I mean, if we're arguing movie here, (laughs) uh, let's get the color grading correct. Um, And look, the Civil War and slavery is a backdrop. Sure. But it doesn't make it any more problematic. It was problematic back then. It's problematic today. Um, And the first half of the movie is, (laughs) is Civil War is a driving force. As much of a backdrop as it is. And it's, was, you know, they kind of glossed over the whole aspect of why that war was fought. <laughs> um, look, there is a, Gone with the Wind does have a legacy, just like the Luther of Oz. However, I want you to think for a moment about how, like, people, uh, you know, cinephiles might hold Gone with the Wind in high esteem. But more often than not, with the average Joe, with the average kids in school who have to read Mice and Men and God with the Wind, it is more of a joke. It is more of a punchline of a movie than like one people will sit through today. It's one of those movies people are like, oh yeah, it has its reputation, but a lot of modern audiences haven't seen it. Where everybody has seen The Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz is a cultural touchstone that's still beloved to this day it was beloved back then and it deserved to win you talk about practical effects look at Oz; it's all painted it's all a painted backdrop
2: so anything to, to answer something that you you've levied against the the gone with the wind film <clears throat> is that they basically just shot the book which is not entirely true there's a good bit of the book that's cut out believe it or not but uh if you've ever seen the movie the outsiders it was Johnny's last wish for C. Thomas Howell to read that to him while he was dying of burn wounds. That's that's cultural significance, my friend. Relevant? You make it into another movie. But I digress. <clears throat> <laughs> the the source material for The Wizard of Oz is not the story told by that movie. And and that's fine. I, I have no problem with that at all. I think you adapt from one medium to the next all day. I'm I'm here for it cool. I liked the book, a simple favor. I liked the movie, a simple favor, even though they're roughly about the same thing, but executed very differently. Gone with the Wind, though, was a cinematic book when it was written by Margaret Mitchell. She had it in her head and it took her decades to write it. And then it took script after script after script to get it right and how to make that real. No less of an achievement than making the land of Oz real. I, I concede that no doubt, but the scope and the sweep of gone with the wind is so large. The burning of Atlanta, seeing that as a backdrop is red is taking that group out of, out of harm's way. But again, I go back to what the central story is. It's a love story. Or as Nicholas Cage says, it's a love story. And it's a love story punctuated by a lot of very tough themes and a lot of very tough moments where we see again, our female protagonist in 1939. She doesn't need anybody to save her at the end of that. She's going to save herself. And she does.
1: You're right. That was incredible for 1939. Um, just as incredible when uh, Dorothy saved the Scarecrow when he was set on fire by the Wicked Witch and she ended up melting the witch and saving herself and all her friends. Absolutely incredible. And that's a 14-year-old girl, 13-year-old girl. Strong female character. It was a year for it. Um, you mentioned, <laughs> half-jokingly, but I have to address this, that God the Wind made it into The Outsiders. Do you want to count how many references the Wizard of Oz, how many movies and TV shows and other plays and books have mentioned the Wizard of Oz in the 100, almost 100 years since the movie debuted?
2: I would only counter that a lot of people also mentioned syphilis. It doesn't make it significant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Wizard of Oz. It's making a comeback, syphilis.
1: (laughs) Sadly, your honor is correct. The Wizard of Oz is so iconic. That there have been countless sequels, remakes, inspired by spinoffs, and not one of them, not one, has come close to touching the lightning in a bottle that was this original movie.
2: I would like to enter into the record Wicked's uh, popularity, Your Honor.
1: Noted. Noted. Okay, fine. Um, I love that show, so fine. I'll, I'll allow that. But... How many times, look, you also mentioned that the author of Gone with the Wind had the movie in her mind when she was writing the book. That's, a, that, that's not a positive argument to me. That's a strike against it. They're two different mediums. Like a, huge Again, I'm going to reference Harry Potter, a huge Harry Potter fan. By the time you get to the last book, you could tell she was writing for the movie. Which is ironic, considering how much they butcher that last book in the movie, but I digress. Like, At least she
2: finished the books, Your Honor, unlike George R. R. Martin. I'd like to enter that into the record as well.
1: I will second that. <laughs> uh, like, we
0: need to bring charges up against George R. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> for killing our dreams.
1: It, it's not a bad thing that The Wizard of Oz took a good book and made it better. Truly made it better. Kids today, adults today, when they see the movie first and go back to read the book, they're like, what is this? It is one of the only times in cinematic history where an adaptation of a book is better than the source material. I can think of, a, you know, Willy Wonka's another one. But like, come on. Like, this is... A, It's an achievement on every level from the writing to the the music over the rainbow is still culturally significant today. Everybody knows follow the yellow brick road. Ding dong. The witch is dead. Come on. Like it was iconic back then. It's become more iconic over the year. There is no arguing at this point that, it deserved to win Best Picture. But please, like I'm open to your questions.
2: I have no further questions. I'm ready for final
0: arguments. All right. Let's move into final arguments then. Anthony.
1: Sure. Um, look, both. Uh, there's no denying this year in Oscar history was a tough year. It's filled with great movies. But the Oscars got it wrong with Gone with the Wind. I'll go as far to say three other movies that year deserved the win overgone with the Wind. At least three. But The Wizard of Oz deserved it and sadly didn't get it. And I think one of the problems with Oscars in general is the short-term thinking. They're like, they don't think about the impact a movie is going to have years down the line. You saw it with The Dark Knight, saw it with The Wizard of Oz to see it. Plenty of time throughout the years. Um, But The Wizard of Oz on every single level. From technical achievement, writing, direction, set design, props, um, everything. Acting. There there is no topping it. Um, Again, to this day is a quintessential fantasy movie. It belongs on the shelf of best movies of all time, best books of all time. And, uh, you know, Dorothy and the Wicked Witch... They're one of the most iconic good versus evil duos in any medium. And you can't take away from any of that. And and the themes are universal. It's about finding heart, brain, courage, home, wherever you go. It's, It's not about what you, it's about appreciating what you have, realizing you have it all within yourself. And who can't relate to that? Who, like me, like most Americans, are struggling with some kind of mental disorder. You know, it's a good reminder. You have everything within yourself you need. You just have to tap into it. It, it, It's a journey of self-discovery and discovering you are enough. And it's a perfect movie. And who doesn't wish, in their own journeys through life, they have the scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion to help guide them. Your Honor, I
0: rest my case. Thank you, Anthony J.
2: The Court, Your Honor, my esteemed colleague, I would like to quote the great Jedi Master Yoda in reference to both of these films' source materials. Page turners, they were not. You will hear no argument from me, otherwise. Both of these films are judged to be rightfully so historically and culturally relevant by AFI and multiple other film you know, societies. But Gone with the Wind ends on the most iconic blow-off line of all time. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Only to be punctuated by Scarlet realizing, I don't care if he gives a damn or not. Because tomorrow is another day. Wizard of Oz is a great fantasy. It's an incredible fantasy with a lot of layered metaphor, yes, but it's a great fantasy. No doubt. An incredible watch. Could have given two statues that year they should have, but they don't do it that way. They gave it to the one about real people who found empowerment in the face of all manner of adversity, some self-inflicted. Some built into their own culture because they didn't know any better or didn't want to know any better. All those faults are are true. As I said from the outset, I don't like my client, Your Honor. But I will argue that it was the best picture of 1939 for those reasons. I rest my
1: case. Jay, I'm glad you brought up that line. Because frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn about this movie. And pretty much no modern audience does either.
0: I'm dropping the gavel. Argument's closed. And I got to tell you that I was about this close to recusing myself. <laughs> Coming off from behind this bench and never looking back. Because this, this case is personally painful. <laughs> this is painful to me. Painful to me. Two of my childhood Heroes pitted against each other. It's very difficult, very difficult, but this this is not about my childhood. This is about the arguments being made. So I think that you both have put forth really compelling arguments and arguments that were for at least one of you, very difficult. Very difficult to put forward. I have to give this one to Anthony. Upon deliberation, I have to give this one to Anthony. So, that leaves us in a pickle, gentlemen, because you both have two points. This is this a mistrial? Win. <laughs> no,
2: it just means it just means at the end of this round we we've tied the night, but overall I still have a one point lead because okay. Zach Snyder sucks. So, <laughs> 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 and Rob Zombie does too, but not as much. <laughs> oh. Anthony, just for curiosity's sake, I need I need to now that the case is over. You're on. I'd love to hear what Anthony's one
1: sentence comeback was. I, yes, I need to I know. I got I got to it. know. It was just going to be because I I had it written down to address the line you mentioned, and I forgot about <laughs> it until you said it. And I was just going to say, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Is pretty much how me and modern audiences view that movie today. <laughs> 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 I
2: concur. <laughs> Again, I don't I didn't like my client. I just gave him a proper defense. <laughs> it's an awful hog beast, your Honor. There's <laughs> my Keanu from the uh, Devil's Advocate. <laughs> which is, which is strangely enough very close to James Vander and Farsi Blues.
1: <laughs> oh boy, that was intense. <laughs> Whew. the last is tough <laughs> <laughs> okay thank you everyone for joining us for Change My Movie Mind if you're using Spotify you can vote on who you think won each round
2: you can also connect with either of our shows on social media Tiz the Podcast or Filmstrip Podcast let us know there thank you again Carmelita for presiding over our discussion please tell folks how they can follow you and hear all the great stuff you're doing out there
0: Well, gentlemen, it was a, an honor and a pleasure to preside over this Installment of Change My Movie Mind. Folks can find me on Twitter, kind of on Blue Sky and on Letterbox at Carmelita.
1: Carmelita, it was such a pleasure meeting you, and I hope this is not our last time recording together. You and me both, <laughs> listeners. We'll talk to you again next time for another round of Change, Change My, My Movie, Movie Mind. Mind. <laughs>